0: We'll move right into our teaching time this morning, and for those that haven't been here the last um, six months or so, five months, uh, we've been studying the book of Romans, and um, <laughs> we, we have really been focused on what I would call the first section of the book of Romans, although we've covered four and a half chapters, we've really covered the, the section on justification. Justification is a big word, and so kind of the... To scale that down, we want to, we'll take a real quick 30,000-foot view so that I can tell you why we're going, where we're going the next few weeks. But the issue is this. In order to get to heaven, God requires a righteousness equal to his own. Now, for those of us who are honest with ourselves, that creates a big problem for us. And in fact, for those that don't think, you need to read through the first three chapters of the book of Romans because he systematically proves that nobody's good enough, nobody's righteous enough in this way. And we get to the end of Romans 3, or kind of toward the end, the middle of the chapter, where it says all are guilty before God. Nobody has the righteousness needed to get to heaven. We got a problem. We got a dilemma. In fact, our problem's twofold because the wages of sin is death. There's this death penalty hanging over us, and we've got a righteousness issue that we don't possess. So what is what do we have to do about it? Well, religion will tell you you better get to work. Religion will tell you you better start going to church. Religion will tell you you better start praying. Religion says you better commit and then pull yourself up by your, by your chin strap. That's what religion says. You see, God disagrees with religion. God provided the solution for you on your behalf as a free gift in the gospel. And the gospel clearly borne out in, in, in Romans 3 is, Jesus Christ did something for you that you could not do for yourself. We know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and then he rose again. He paid your death penalty, and now God will credit righteousness to your account the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the moment you stop working, the moment you stop trying to be righteous. When you trust in God's provision, God will credit righteousness to your account. He will take Jesus' death and place it in your stead so that you don't have to pay that penalty. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what we've been looking at. And in chapter four, we saw that this is not some contingency plan. This isn't plan B. This wasn't God aborting his initial plan and coming up with a second plan. We see in chapter four that he had this plan throughout eternity. This was always the way. And he gives two Old Testament examples to show that men are always justified by faith on the basis of God's grace. And we saw that in chapter four. What we've been looking at in chapter five, the last couple of weeks, we stopped in verse 11, is simply this. There are benefits to your justification you need to know about. There are things inside that box that you need to open and not be a kid at like a two-year-old at Christmas. I told Carrie one year, why do we even waste our money on toys? Just wrap boxes. Just give them the box. They don't, they'll play with the bows. We can save hundreds of dollars. We could put it in their college fund. They'll never know. Get a head start. Don't be like a two-year-old at Christmas. Open the box. Start benefiting from what you possess now in Christ that you've been justified by faith. And that's what we've been looking at. Now, the reason I'm gonna take a detour This morning, instead of continuing to go through the book of Romans, is because we're shifting in the book of Romans. Once we hit Romans five we're entering a new section. We're leaving justification to enter a section that we would call identification. And then moving on into chapter six, we're going to start looking at sanctification. Remember, sanctification, just a big word meaning being saved from the power of sin in your daily life. See, God is not only giving you a ticket to heaven, he wants you to enjoy the process getting there. He wants you to not be dominated by sin's power in your daily life. And so he's made provision for that as well. We're going to get to that. But before we do, I think it's very important to spend a few weeks on what the gospel is not. Do you know that the third leading cause of death in our culture, in our society today, is caused by preventable medical errors for people who are in hospitals? It's third behind heart disease and cancer. This is third. Third leading cause of death in our country is preventable medical errors while people are under the care of trained doctors and nurses in a hospital. Did you realize that? And you know what's interesting about that, especially as it comes to the gospel, is I don't think, I mean, there's probably a bad apple or a bad egg somewhere in these hospitals that's maybe doing some of this on purpose. In fact, I just read a story about a lady that they're charging for like 50 counts of murder over the course of 25 years. But assuming that people, when they take the oath to to serve and, well, that's please serve and protect, but there's another oath that they take to help life and to care for life. And you know, Preventable medical errors, people who sincerely want to help the patient but misread the medicine chart. Instead of giving three CCs, they give 30 because the doctor was sloppy and like doctors are maybe scratched in a, something that looked like a zero. And instead of giving it three times a day, they, they give it once a day. They forget, they get busy. There's preventable medical errors from people who care, who want the best for their patients. In our day, something very similar is happening with the gospel people who have all sincerity want to see people going to heaven want to see people get saved are repeating clichés that aren't even biblical are telling people that you can get saved by, and we're going to insert in that blank over the next four weeks, what people are telling people they need to, be, need to do to be saved. And you know what? If people take these cliches at face value, guess what the end result will be according to the scriptures? They'll go right to hell. Now, this is not a small thing. This is not a semantical thing. This is an attempt to get and to be biblical in an attempt to understand that there is an enemy out there that is attacking the clarity of the gospel because Satan knows there's only one way to heaven. And it's based on what that man did on the cross. It's based upon what he accomplished. And the second you add anything to what Jesus Christ did, you don't have salvation. You don't have good news. You've got bad news. And the end result of that bad news is an eternity in the lake of fire. That's what the scriptures say. So forgive me if I get a little bit even more passionate these next couple weeks because this is serious business. This would be like you going into a doctor's office um, and, you, and you're getting a heart uh, procedure done and you're going to the heart doctor and you wake up with a scar from the top of your head to the bottom of your toe. You say, Doc, you know, can you be a little bit more precise? <laughs> my heart's here, my man. Not all up and down here. Can you, can you get to the heart? This is so important because eternal destinies rest on this message. They rest on what Jesus Christ did. And so we're going to look at that the next four weeks. And I'm going to introduce a couple of words that nobody likes to hear. I don't care if you're a kid or an adult, but here they are. I'm sorry. You didn't know you'd be put through pain this morning. Pop quiz. You remember those those words when your teacher came in? Pop quiz. Pop quiz. So I got a pop quiz for you this morning. If you have a pen, I want you to take it out. If you don't have a pen, you're not off the hook. I want you to think mentally about this question I want to ask. And I'm going to give you a minute. Like it's going to be silent in here. I want you to take this to heart. I want you to participate in this. Here's the question. What must you do to be saved? You got a minute. Nobody's going to look at your answer. No, we're not going to pass these around and point at each other. Did you see what she said? Did you see what he said? I just want to challenge you this morning. You're with a loved one. You're with a relative. They've got 30 seconds to live. They ask you this question. What do you tell them? What's the biblical response to this question? All right. Pens down. minds reoccupied up here and we'll... I just want you to keep that because I want you to compare throughout the message because um, I tell you what's really unfortunate about this situation is I've met a lot of sincere people, a lot of people who have been taught well, who have been exposed to false teaching on the radio, um, through books, through TV, um, as, it, as what it takes that you must be saved. And I don't even think many of us realize the exposure that we've had to it. And the things that we think are saying the same thing. But we're going to point out they're not saying the same thing. In fact, they're going to do the very opposite of telling you to trust exclusively in what Jesus Christ did for you. They're going to give you something else to do. They're going to add a work. And we're going to look at that over the course of the next four weeks. Now, where do I get the basis for this? Well, look at, go with me to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I just want to show you that I, I believe as, as Paul taught truth, many times he would tell you what, it, what things were and what they were not, what things were and what they were not. Because when you, when you start to put together what things are not, many times that's when the light bulb goes off. Many times that's when clarity goes off. Um, I don't know if you've ever put something together before. I am not the most handy person in, in the world. But what I have learned about myself is I don't know enough about putting things together that if I cannot just read one step at a time, I have to read a couple of steps down because inevitably, and I remember one time I was putting together a basketball hoop and, I, and it said, put, these, put the two poles together. And I reached in the box. I just grabbed the first two poles I saw. Okay, these look like they fit. Boom, bang it together. And you had to like get up on a ladder and hammer it down so they wouldn't come out again. Well, then like three steps down, it says, but don't put together pieces one and two. I looked, what poles did I put together? One and two. Walmart's cool about that, by the way. You just take it back. They give you a new set, even if you mess it up. So that's what I ended up doing. But when you talk about what the gospel is and what it's not, Paul had no problem clarifying that for us. Look at Ephesians 2.8.9. You'll see his thought process. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what it is. That not of yourselves. That's what it's not. It is the gift of God. That's what it is. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's what it's not. And so you see this going back and forth, that's what we're going to do over the course of the next four weeks. And so a brief introduction, you know, the word gospel uh, is a generic word. It just means good news of any kind, okay? We could could use that in our own life. Anytime we got good news, we could say euangelion. If you want to talk in Greek, you can use that word. But it's just good news of any kind. It's when the gospel writers began to articulate it, put a V, identified as unique, that we have this application of what Jesus did. A very specific good news is what we're talking about. Now, just based, just based on that, you know, news, by definition, is something that's already happened. It's not something, you don't go to the newspaper to find out what's going to happen today. You don't go to the newspaper. Kids, by the way, newspapers are printed news. I know you can get them on your phone now. But you don't go to the newspaper or news app to read about what's going to happen tomorrow. What do you read about in news? What's already happened yesterday or before yesterday. It's, these are accomplished facts. And so when we talk about the good news, if you introduced anything on your paper or your mind that you recorded that had something about you doing something today, besides believe and what's already been done, you've been impacted by false cliche responses to the gospel. Just understand, it's out there. It's fighting for your mind. Satan is trying to deceive. And he's trying to take the very message that can save souls and detour you and, and destroy it so nobody can get saved. That's his goal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. He wants to maim. He wants to harm. And the best thing he's got are people who are sitting in church who think they're saved, who listen to the same message every week that are false cliches here and there, and one day will slip right off the church pew into an eternity in hell. That's... His goal—that's the best type of accomplishment he can acquire in this life. Deceit, deception, and so we see the gospel means good news. It's just something that's already happened. In fact, the gospel is an objective; it means it's—it's it's not how you feel. Oh, I feel saved. It doesn't matter how you feel. <laughs> what matters is—is is Are you trusting in God's provision for your salvation? It's an objective message. It's verifiable. It's historical. That means if we could hop in a time machine, we could go back 2,000 years and we could watch Jesus die on a cross on a hill called Golgotha. And if we could watch the tomb that he was buried in, we could see the light burst forth and see him rise from the dead. It happened. It's historical. It's verifiable. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about events that happened in a day in history. Now, what you have to do to be saved, that's something different. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And so we see that the gospel involves the person and work of Jesus Christ. We find this clearly shown in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, which we read earlier today. But the person, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He's fully man. He had to be able to die for your sins, but he's fully God where his death can count for everybody. That's why when the Bible says, whosoever will, it means whosoever will. It means whosoever will believe. The offer is for everybody. Why? Because Jesus was God. His death could count in the place of everybody. His person's important. We're not just believing in some guy named Jesus or some neighbor named Jesus down the street. It's not just this name that somebody's been given. It's this person. It's specifically Jesus Christ. Who lived 2,000 years ago. And what work are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that he died for your sins and he rose again. See, only Jesus can do that work. Only Jesus has done that work. And so when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about a person. We're talking about a work. Now, why the need for the gospel? Well, as we've, I think, clearly tried to communicate in the book of Romans, we got problems. You got problems. I got problems. Two, specifically, you've got a debt you cannot pay. It's called a death penalty. And you've got an unrighteousness. You've got a righteousness issue. You cannot make right. It's like dropping one drop of poison or 50 drops of poison in this cup of water. The second one drops in there, it's polluted. I'm not touching it. Right? It's, it's been corrupted. One sin can corrupt you. One sin, as James 2.10 says, it's like you broke the whole law. That corrupts. And so we got an issue. We've got a debt problem. We've got a righteousness issue. And this is exactly what the gospel takes care of. And this is why the only response to the gospel, what must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, why Jesus? Because he's the one who died for you and rose again. Very specific faith in a very specific object for a very specific purpose. And that is his finished work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. Please understand that although we wanna get the response right, we are not preaching the response. You know, I have a lot of friends that all they wanna talk about is faith alone, faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. And they'll tell people faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. We're preaching Christ. We're preaching the gospel. We're not just preaching the response. We're encouraging the response to what we're preaching. But make no mistake Preaching faith alone is not preaching the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. That's the gospel. The response to that is faith alone and Christ alone. But we're not just preaching response. We're preaching the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you in Corinthians, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're preaching the gospel. The gospel is what has the power to save. Jesus Christ is, what ha- is who has power to save, not a response. The response has got to be clear. and That's what we're going to be spending time on. But let's, uh, if you'll allow me just to make that distinction. Religion says this. Religion doesn't have a problem with Jesus Christ. It's got the, a problem with the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That's what religion has a problem with. Religion says Jesus did 90, you must do 10. Some religions, Jesus did 99.9, you must do 10. Point one. All I'm saying is if that is not 100%, you have a gospel of works, you're earning your way to heaven. However you want to slice it. Because either it's a gift or it's not. And I don't know why that seems so simple to understand. But it is difficult to understand as we're going to see through these false cl- cliches. Because people have no problem saying it's a gift, but you've got to work for it. What? I mean, I, I don't know. I someone's going to have to help me understand that one day. The sky's blue, but it's gray. You're fat, but you're skinny. You're tall, but you're short. Really? It's a gift, but you got to earn it? How does that work out? I don't I don't understand. The gospel says Jesus did it all. Jesus did 100%. See, this is salvation by God's grace. This is not something you merit or earn or deserve. And even faith is not meritorious. Faith is admitting, in some senses, I can't save myself. I'm trusting in somebody else to save me. So it's not a work. I'm trusting in the work of another. It's totally different than every other cliche that we see biblically or or out in the culture. The cliche, it's faith in Jesus Christ alone. So what's the problem? Why are we even making a big deal? Everyone, uh, you know, most most people just shake their head at this. Yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. Let's move on. What's the problem? Here's the problem. The gospel's under satanic attack. And if, if you don't believe that, the reason it is is because it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the only way by which people can get saved. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, notice this, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Now notice this next phrase, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Do we understand that the gospel is under satanic attack? That this is not just a semantic issue it involves semantics don't get me wrong but it's not just semantics it's not hey we're saying the same thing how do you give your heart to Christ and ask him into the into your heart and tell me that's the same thing one's going out one's coming in which one is it how do you uh commit your life to Christ and uh, and surrender all and trust him for salvation how how is that saying the same thing it's it's clearly not saying the same thing. And that's all I'm saying is we want to be biblical. Where the Bible says believe or trust or put your faith in Christ 160 times in the New Testament as the only prerequisite to get saved, I kind of want to put a period after that then. I'm okay with that response. I just want to leave it right there. I don't need to add anything to it. I don't need to subtract anything from it. I just want it to stop right there. And I think that's the message that God wants us to communicate uh, as clear as he communicates it over and over and over again. This is how many of the c- confusing cliches work today. Just like this sign, do not enter, enter only. What would you do if you found that on the road? I, I would just probably turn left or something. I, I, if I was going to somebody's house, I'm, so, I'm sorry I couldn't get there. I, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. And yet this is what many of the gospel cliches do. And so as we, as we think about that, I want you to prepare uh, to, to kind of notice the contradictions. Notice that they're not saying the same thing as faith. Jesus in John 19 30 said this, when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Do you know I have uh, two bad habits of collecting. I, um, you can ask Carrie, I, and I've gotten better at this, but I used to collect Bibles. I used to have just I don't know how many Bibles I collected. And, and Carrie would be like, why do you have this many Bibles? And especially it becomes really um, intense when you're moving because you, Bibles are heavy. You know, you're slapping them in the boxes. You're moving them around. Why do you have so many Bibles? So, so I, I started, you know, giving, those, giving some of those away. And so I've got a really good outlet now in Liberia to give Bibles away. So I, I still collect them, but I clean them out quick too. But the other thing that I collect is gospel tracts. I collect gospel tracks from from everywhere. If I go to a, a funeral home, if I go to a hospital, if I go to another church, uh, if I'm in a Christian ministry, I and they got tracks out. I take them and and go home. You know, the first thing I do when I get the gospel track, I just read the end because I because I know right then do I have something in my hand that's going to be useful to me. And you know, I've got stacks of gospel tracks down in my office. Love to have you by in my office someday. I'm down in the basement. Um, One of these days when I get off probation, um, there's going to be an office for me up here, I think. No, just kidding. All all joking aside. I've got a stack of gospel tracts. I would love for you to come down to my office and read through some of those with me. Because uh, there's a track that I'm thinking of right now that as you go through and you look at the ways, what must I do to be saved? There's no less than eight different ways communicated in one track to get saved. Do not enter, enter here. We don't see it because we're so, and I say we, our culture, we're so religiously minded. We've heard all this religious phraseology and, and stuff and we just think it's all saying the same thing and so it doesn't even register in our thinking anymore as being false. We think it's saying the same thing. We think that asking For forgiveness in believing in Jesus Christ is saying the same thing. But you find me one thesaurus on earth that puts believe and ask next to each other. It's not. It's not saying the same thing. And yet we're okay with that. It's not in the Bible. It's in the it's in the churches, and we're okay with that. My challenge to us these next couple weeks is let's be biblical. Let's actually take the message of salvation, this, this good news. Let's communicate that clearly, and let's communicate the response clearly. And then let's just get our hands off of everything else. Let's just let it, let it happen and trust the Lord as the way he put it together that this is enough. When Jesus said, it is finished, and I shared this on Easter he meant that everything had been taken care of as it relates to your 2 prong problem. How do I know that? Well, the word it is finished is one word in the Greek. It's tetelestai. It had three significant meanings. First meaning was it was used in debt collection. So this, this word tetelestai was found stamped on invoices to indicate that the, the debt had been paid in full. That's one significance to the word The second significance of the word is when they would actually send out Jewish young men to find sacrifices for the temple around Passover. They would send them out. They had to find a male lamb without blemish, lots of requirements. And when they found that lamb, they would yell out, Tetelestai, the sacrificial lamb has been found. And then the third significance of the word is this was used in commercial centers when a boss gave an employee a task to do and he would return to his boss and say, Tetelestai, the task that you've given me is completed. And so when Jesus yelled out last words on the cross, tetelestai, what he was in essence saying, the debt has been paid in full, the sacrificial lamb has been found, and the job that you gave me is completed. So there's significance in words. And if Jesus says it's done, who are we to say that it's not? If Jesus says it's finished, who are we to say that something else remains, whatever that something else might be? The question becomes as if it's finished, what's the proper response to a finished work? And the Bible tells us clearly, trust in it. Trust in that finished work on your behalf. I want you to notice as we go through, I want you to notice if the gospel responses or cliches that we look at today are synonymous with faith? Do they mean the same thing? Trust, belief, or rely upon? Are they synonymous, or are they saying something different? And I also want you to notice if these cliches take care of the penalty of sin, death. Now, I brought up a couple of visual aids this morning, and I'm just going to tell you what what I believe uh, has happened. And John, if you'll uh, grab those lights for me, it may show up a little bit better. You know, back in Romans 3, we, we mentioned that, that God uh, is pointing his finger. Remember the, the word that, that we, we looked at in Romans 3, that God is pointing his finger at the cross as to where his justice was fully met. And he's pointing at Jesus. And I believe as we share the gospel, God wants us to keep our flashlight on Jesus Christ. Even if we give the response, believe, the natural question should be, believe what? Trust in what? And it takes us back to the gospel. And when we keep the flashlight on Jesus Christ and what he's done, we're gonna recognize that everything has been done. There's nothing remaining to do. What we're gonna see is that these false cliches, thank you to Ruth Miller for the mannequin this week, is we're gonna see that all of these false cliches do exactly that. They take the focus off of what Jesus has done and put it back onto what we must do. And we're gonna see that played out in these cliches the next few weeks. And so let's, uh, without further ado, actually we've got a, a couple of further adoos here and then we'll get to the, to the confusion. This is the response. What must you do to be saved? Trust in Jesus. Why Jesus? Because he's the one who died for your sins and rose again. And you know what I love about this picture? I was looking for that. I love that big fat period right there because that's where it belongs. And you know, for these gospel cliches, you know what they do with that Period they do this and you know what they bring in a comma and you know what else they bring in and trust in Jesus and trust in Jesus but you also whatever trust in Jesus plus see that's what we're going to see in these false gospel cliches It, it the second the period gets erased you just just run that's not a saving message Trust in Jesus, him alone. Why? He said it's finished. He died for your sins. God accepted his work on your behalf, raised him from the dead. God said amen to what Jesus did. And you can say amen by putting your faith in what Jesus did for you. Period. Period. Big fat period. I like this illustration from Larry Moyer. If you're ever having uh, an opportunity to share the gospel and, and you're struggling to get this across, Draw three circles, put a W in one, put a W plus C in one, put a C in one. W represents works. You're getting to heaven based on your works. And when you believe that, when you understand that that's how you're saved is through works, you're basically saying that Christ's work is unnecessary because you're going to get you there yourself. See, you're, you're given the ability to choose your Savior. You can choose Jesus and you can trust in what he did for you or you can choose another Savior yourself a church, your, your ability to do good, your, your smarts, your engineer, whatever you want to trust in, you have the ability to trust your Savior. My encouragement to you is to trust the Savior that the Bible identifies, which is Jesus, Him alone. But if you think you're going to heaven based on works, you think the work of Christ was unnecessary. You didn't have to die. I get there on my own. If you believe that Christ plus works gets you in, which is what we're going to look at in these cliches, you think that Christ's work was disappointing. Ah, he, did, he did some, but I'm going to have to help him. I, I, I'm going to have to pick up the slack there. You know, he did 99.9. I'm going to have to pick up that 0.1%. Or you can believe that Christ did what he said he can did, And that means that if you're trusting in Christ alone, you are satisfied the same way the Bible says that God is satisfied with what Jesus did. And so this, again, just a, another illustration to help communicate this truth. Okay. No further ado. Here we go. Confusion number one that we're going to look at this week, and, and you've probably heard this. Um, maybe in closed doors and private areas, you might admit that you've actually used this cliche. I, I do want to say that um, early in my Christian life, um, I used all of these cliches. My heart was sincere. I wanted to see people get saved. I used to, people used to say that I would witness to a tree if it wasn't swinging in the wind too hard, if it was still enough. And I just had a heart's passion for people and understand the gospel. And I would share all of these cliches until someone pointed out to me and says, where's that found in the Bible? In fact, when we talk about giving our heart or life to God, it sounds like a pretty good thing to tell somebody, right? It's I mean, you're not telling them to go down to the bar and get drunk and sleep in the gutter tomorrow. I mean, that, I mean, in essence, it sounds like a good thing. The question becomes, is it a biblical thing? Is this what somebody really has to do to be saved? Well, what we're going to see is that the saving message of the gospel does not involve giving something to God in return for salvation. Have you ever thought about that? Who's the giver in salvation according to the Bible? Well, God's the giver. God's giving the gift of eternal life. It's a gift from him, not a gift from you. So it's, this isn't about you giving something to God. It's about you recognizing what God has given to you. It's a totally total reversal here as it relates to salvation. In fact... If this is how you get saved, so through some exchange, then it's no longer a free gift. You're, you're down at the market now bargaining. Hey, you give me that, I'll give you this. Hey, you give me that, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll give you this and this, right? We're not bargaining for God. In fact, Romans eleven six 6 makes it clear. You're either saved by grace or you're saved by works, ne'er the, two sh- ne'er the twain shall the two ever meet. I'm trying to say something there and it didn't come out right. They don't come together right? Grace and works don't come together. They can't. It's impossible. So if you're going to get saved by giving your life to Christ, you're getting saved by your works. You're getting saved on based on what you are doing for Christ. What's the gospel? Something that's already happened. What's this response to? Something you got to do right now. Done. Done. Do. It becomes very clear. Romans eleven six if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. If you try to mix grace and works, you have to redefine the words. They don't mean what they mean anymore. They've got to be, whoa, hello. <laughs> and so this cliche actually gets everything backwards. Do you realize that? In fact, is the gospel about you giving your life or your heart Or anything else to God? Or is the gospel about Jesus Christ giving his life for you? In fact, let me put it a different way. If you were to appear before God at heaven's gate and God said, why should I let you in? And you had one answer. Multiple choice. It's because I gave my life for that man seated at your right hand. Or because that man seated at your right hand gave his life for me. Which one would you pick? i pick B. It's that man seated at his right hand with the nail prints in his arms and in his feet and the spear mark in his side. It's that man who gave his life for me, not the other way around. You see how this totally flips the gospel. This totally flips faith on its head. And it totally now makes it about what you're doing versus what Jesus has already done. And I want to rest in what Jesus has already done. That's where my confidence is going to be. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And then notice this next phrase, he gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. But again, is it Christ giving himself for us or is it us giving ourselves to to God or giving ourselves to Christ, clearly it's the other way around. Our emphasis is on what Christ has done. The gospel is good news—something that's already happened, not something we must continue to do. Confusion number two: in addition to trusting in Jesus, uh, we add the comma. Uh, the comma, and um, you know, this is a big one because believe and confess your sins. See, confession of sins—anyone ever read that in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. So it's not that this isn't a biblical truth. It's just not a truth that needs to be jammed up as a prerequisite to be saved. In fact, what we're going to see is when we look at confession of sins, it's a truth for somebody who's already saved, not for an unbeliever to get saved. We're going to kind of walk through that. But understand this, that confession of sins is not a requirement for salvation. Now, do you have to understand you're a sinner? understand your need for a savior? Well, yeah, I, I think that's logical because why would you trust in a savior if you thought you were good enough? You didn't realize you were a sinner. That's not what confession means. That's not what people mean when they say you must confess your sins to be saved. In fact, if I'm swimming in a pool and, and a lifeguard comes and grabs me by the by my neck and drags me out of the water, I'm going to be mad. Why? Because I wasn't drowning. Dude, let me swim. What are you jacking me out of the pool for? Like that doesn't even make any sense. But the moment I start to swallow water, the moment I realize that I'm going under, the moment I realize I can't catch my breath, and then the lifeguard puts his arm around my neck and drags me to shore, I give the guy a hug. Man, thank you for saving my life. See, I realize the need and I quit trying to save myself. And so this is what we're talking about uh, as it relates to confession of sins. We're, we're, talking, we're not saying that you don't have to realize you're a sinner. Of course, if you don't realize it, you're not going to put your trust in a Savior. So at some level, that has to enter into your thinking. Otherwise, you won't trust in the Savior that God's provided. But you know that you don't have to confess your sins in order to be saved. In fact, do you know that it would be impossible, physically impossible, for you to remember every sin that you've even ever committed? In fact, let me give you a quick test. What'd you have for dinner last night? You can't even remember what you had for dinner last night, let alone every sin you've ever committed. Are you kidding? That's what you want your eternal salvation to be based on? Do you think that's what God wants your eternal salvation to be based on, whether or not you've got a good memory? Man, we're toast. As I've shared, I can't even remember to take the trash out on the appointed night. The night doesn't even change. I just can't remember. We got problems if our salvation's based on our memory. You know. Secondly, it would invite disconcerting introspection. You would never be free and clear or secure in your salvation because you'd you'd fear that you'd forgotten something. How in the did you ever sin as a two year old? No. Yeah. Right. I mean, come come look at a two year old in our nursery. Spend a little time and see if little two year olds sin. How are they going to remember sins that they're committing in the nursery at two? Amen, Sybil, did you say amen? <laughs> but let's do some confession math, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it real easy on all of us. Let's just assume you sin three times per day, that's it. Man, you're, see, I'm giving you credit here. Some of y'all, real, a lot of credit. And, and myself included. So, so three sins per day, that would be 1,095 sins per year. And then based on an 80-year lifespan, that would be 87,600 sins committed in your lifetime. Do you see how ridiculous this cliche is in order to get somebody saved? Nobody would be saved, folks. If, if this is how you got saved, nobody could be saved. I'd rather try to keep the law than try to remember all the sins I've committed. Try to get there on my good work. This, you got no chance if this is how we get saved. So, Where does confession fit in? Well, let me just say this. You know, individuals will be condemned to the lake of fire, not because they failed to confess all their sins, but because they didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the issue now. Sin has been paid for. Anybody can benefit from the payment that Jesus made. All they have to do is believe in him. People will go to hell with their sins paid for. The one sin that will send people to hell is rejection of Jesus Christ. If they won't trust exclusively in what Jesus did, they'll go to hell. That's what John three eighteen says, because they've never believed on him. That's what sins people to have, not lack of confession of your sins. So where does confession fit in? Well, confession of sins is for the believer. And it's not to stay saved. It's to restore fellowship with God. It's not for the unbeliever to become saved. In fact, we find this in 1 John 1, 9. We can Uh, Turn there and look at this verse, 1 John toward the back of the Bible, toward Revelation, 1 John 1, 9, um, and you're going to see this word fellowship in, in the previous eight verses a few times. We're talking about fellowship for people who are already children of God. You know, you don't get into God's family through behavior. You get into God's family through birth, and that's why it's secure, Because just like you could never get out of your family, if you're born in your family, you can't go back to the hospital and say, man, I I want a refund. Like my family stinks. Like get me out of here, redo this thing. You can't do that. Your family's your family. And just the same way, when you enter God's family through birth, you can't get out of the family. Because you didn't get in through behavior, you can't get out through behavior, bad behavior, good behavior, whatever. So what happens when a believer engages in bad behavior. Well, tell me what happens in your family when you used to engage in bad behavior. See, I'm giving you credit, used to. Well, I know what I did. This, this man right over here used to be about 15 or 20 pounds more of solid muscle. And I remember the belt used to come off and I used to get a lickin' when I got in trouble. And I got disciplined. But he never kicked me out of the family. He never said, you can't sleep in your room anymore, go outside. He never dropped me off at the Greyhound bus station and said, you are officially disowned. He might have wanted to a couple of times. I don't know. (laughs) But he couldn't do that because I was part of his family. But, you know, he disciplined me. And I distinctly remember the battle, the tension in my head as a kid. When I got disciplined, I would go to my room and I was upset with this man. After a time in my room, I'd come out and sit on his lap. There's something about discipline. There's something about acknowledging your sin that restores fellowship. And see, with our Heavenly Father, it's the same way. First Corinthians, or I'm sorry, First John one nine says this if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know that the only thing standing between you and God, if you're a believer today, the only thing standing in your way of just enjoying fellowship with him is confession of sin. What does that mean? What does confession mean? Well, it, it, this word confession translates a couple of Greek words: um, homologeo or exhomologeo. It's derived from two root words: uh, homo, meaning the same thing, and logeo, meaning to speak. And so, when we talk about confession, we're literally saying to say the same thing as God. Now, you you understand this more than you would probably give yourself credit for. Um, this is not the same thing as saying I'm sorry. Let's just put that out there. This is not saying I'm sorry. Um, we do that a lot in our human relationships. In fact, parents think of a, of a time when your kids, you, you corrected your kids and they said, I'm sorry. And what's the next question that good parents follow up with? Sorry about what? What are you sorry about? And then we find out if they really understand. Because now we find out, are they saying sorry because they got in trouble and they got caught? Or are they saying sorry because they truly understand that what they did was wrong? In fact, I've noticed in my own life and probably the lives of my kids, sometimes saying I'm sorry is the equivalent of saying shut up and get off my back. Not what I did was wrong, but shut up and leave me alone. And you've seen it, right? Siblings, you did this to her, she did this to you, say sorry to one another. How's that go down sometimes? Sometimes. It's like, sorry. I mean, they're about to slug each other when they're saying, I'm sorry. So this is not saying, I'm sorry. That's not what confession means. Rather, just like you would with your children, I'm sorry, dad, because when I spoke back to you, I was showing you disrespect. That's confession. Saying the same thing about that sin that I would say. I'm sorry when I threw that ball across the room and at 90 miles an hour and broke my sister's jawbone. Whatever it is, I mean, <laughs> confession is naming the sin. You're, you're identifying the sin. And so God wants you and I to do that as believers. Lord, when I looked at that person, I was angry. Lord, when I said that to my kid, I was out of control. I was angry. Lord, when I responded that way to my wife, Lord, I was angry, Lord, when I said that thing to somebody in the Bible study, I was trying to show them up because I'm jealous of that person. Name it. Name what's going on. Lord, when I made that decision, I was in total rebellion. Name it. Guess what the promise is? God's not going to be like, oh, really? Wow. Let me think about that for a second. The text tells us God is waiting to receive you back. Fellowship, forgiveness, continual relational forgiveness. When you're out of fellowship with Lord, it may break your heart, but you know whose heart it's been breaking the whole time you've been out of fellowship? <laughs> his, because he loves you that much. He loves you that much. And all he said is, once you name it, come back in on his lap, come enjoy him. But this, again, uh, the purpose of our study today, it's not how you get saved. This is a truth for a believer, somebody that's already been saved. And so next week we will uh, continue with, with some more confusions um, and, hopefully, and, and hopefully move a little bit quicker. So I was a little bit behind today. So uh, let's pray. Close with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we do thank you. Lord, it's, it's our heart's desire to keep Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf at the forefront of our mind and the forefront of our communication. When you give us opportunities to share the gospel with somebody, uh, may, you, may you give us a, a passion and understanding to be clear uh, with the message that we speak. It's not our desire to share something that's incorrect or that takes the focus off of Jesus. We want to just keep him in the center uh, of, of thinking. We want to keep him in his work before people, Um, and challenge them just to trust in what Jesus has done. We believe that Jesus was telling the truth when he said it was finished. And so we are uh, encouraged by that fact. We rejoice in the fact that our uh, entrance into heaven is not based on anything we must do or continue to do, but based on good news, news that's already happened, something that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And so give us that understanding and clarity. Make this important to us in our thinking, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.